On today's show, we're talking 51% attacks, the much-discussed, infrequently seen, and fairly misunderstood doomsday scenarios which recently have re-emerged as Ethereum plans its transition to proof-of-stake, and Fork Ethereum Classic is hit by its third such attack in less than a month. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm joined, as always, by the other host of the show, Stephanie Murphy. Hi there. Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. Thanks to all the hosts for joining me here today, and to you, the listener, for sitting in on today's session. So to jump right in, Bitcoin, Ethereum, proof of stake, proof of work, although the numbers may change, basically any blockchain you can imagine is vulnerable to some form of the so-called 51% attack. By distributing the power within a protocol, say to miners instead of a corporate board, blockchains and other decentralized systems create and maintain a consensus reality, where what most of the network believes to be true is actually true, or becomes true for the entirety of the network. If you think about it, this makes sense. Each blockchain creates a game with a distinct set of rules that need to be followed for the thing to work. And then lots of people who don't know each other individually all follow the rules by themselves and get rewarded for that. The assumption underlying all of these systems is that most of the people are going to follow the rules most of the time. And even if a lot of people aren't following the rules, they're probably breaking them in different ways that benefit themselves rather than working together. In a 51% attack, that assumption is broken, as most or at least enough of the network is overcome by bad actors or perhaps a single large bad actor who aim to rewrite reality in their favor. It's a real problem, one of the biggest that face blockchains, especially less popular ones. But even if you could pull it off, the outcome might not be as bad as many fear. Our first story today, which comes to us from Coindesk, notes that the Ethereum Classic chain has been hit by three different successful 51% attacks in the month of August alone. But surprising to many, nobody really cared. Today's show is brought to you by Crypto.com, Bitstamp, and Nexo.io. So with all of that said, let's talk 51% attacks. Like, just kind of drawing back from all of this specificity about kind of how the attack itself works. Like, in a worst-case scenario, in a proof-of-work chain, and then we'll talk about proof-of-stake after that, what can be done with a 51% attack? I've successfully attacked the Bitcoin network. What can I do? Not much is the real answer. And I think that's the biggest misunderstanding about 51% attacks. 51% attacks do not allow you to depart from consensus rules. That is a whole separate problem. 51% attacks means that within the existing consensus rules, you can do essentially two things. One is you can double spend, meaning that you can rewrite the near past in order to retarget a spent amount so that it wasn't spent. And presumably you've already received the benefits that you paid for originally. And that means that you end up stealing from whoever you sent that money to. So that's one type of attack is you defeat the double spend protection that consensus aims to achieve. You can also achieve another effect, which is that those who are securing the consensus rules and participating in the consensus algorithm get to sequence and select transactions. And so without breaking the consensus rules, what can happen is that you can have essentially a denial of service where transactions are censored by not being included. So in selecting the transactions, either a lot of transactions are not selected targeting a specific spender or no transactions are selected and the blockchain 
continues just with empty blocks, essentially denying service to everyone. So the most important thing to understand here is that you can't just change the rules. And I think the best way to think about that is within the consensus algorithm, you have to have 51% of the actors acting faithfully in terms of sequencing and double spend. That's a bit like parliament voting. And if you have a majority of the votes in parliament, you can pass laws, but you can't pass unconstitutional laws. They still have to be constitutional. The consensus rules are the constitution. And within those rules, you can decide which transactions to include. They have to be valid. You can't break the consensus rules, but you can still do things to enrich yourself within those rules. I really like that analogy of the Constitution and the Congress. So it's like, I guess I fall prey to this too, thinking that a 51% attack is like really bad. And I think maybe where that comes from for me, which you didn't really mention, Andreas, is like that it has the effect of undermining confidence in the whole system. People think in general that a 51% attack is really bad. Fatal. And where does that come from? Is it like other open source software? Is it just a misunderstanding of how bad a 51% attack is in something like Bitcoin? I think part of it is that you have an easily identifiable number. So people can fixate on that, meaning that the way you attack a consensus algorithm is rather complicated. And there's lots of different attacks, including the types of social attacks you see where people say that's not the real Bitcoin, this is the real Bitcoin. Hard fork attacks where you fork off a new coin and try to claim dominance. All of these attacks are vague. They're complicated. They involve complicated game theory. But if you say 51%, well, I mean, that seems at least on its face to be simple. There is a number. If it's reached, the system is attacked. And that gives that sense of simplicity, I think, makes a lot of people focus on this, even though it's really mostly an academic issue and it's not as fatal as it might at first appear. Yeah, people also make a big deal out of when one consortium or one mining pool gets close to approaching about 51% of the hashing power. Yes, again, because you're reaching this very visible milestone. What is clear is the number 51% attack and then something happens. What's not clear is what exactly happens. And if people don't know what exactly happens, they can imagine the worst, right? You can steal Bitcoin that doesn't belong to you. Actually, no, you can't. You can't sign for Bitcoin that you don't have the private keys to. You can't make Bitcoin that previously didn't exist or any other cryptocurrency, of course, that follows the same rules. You can't simply change the rules of consensus. You still have to produce valid transactions and valid blocks. So the scenario is actually very narrow. What a miner can do is buy something perhaps another currency, like an exchange transaction or some physical item, and then rewind the blockchain and spend that same amount simply to another address they own, basically pay themselves instead of paying the person that they bought something. And now the person they bought something from has lost that money. So that's really the scenario. It means that the miners can really only do this for transactions that they made on keys they controlled, on amounts they controlled. So on kind of the severity of the problem, 
maybe it's severe relative to the other types of ways that you can attack the blockchain from a technical sense, right? Like, one of the things that's so interesting and so compelling about decentralized systems is that they're really hard to disrupt because they're decentralized, right? They're not efficient, which is, again, like that there are major advantages to efficient systems. But one of the downsides is that efficient systems lack redundancy to the point where you can attack them in many ways and you can really impact them. But decentralized systems don't have that problem. As we've talked about during the kind of prior round of decentralization philosophy episodes that we did, you know, like the way that historically decentralized systems have been conquered is by taking steps to centralize them. And then once they become a centralized system, you know, this is, again, the giving cows to the Indian tribes that were previously decentralized, but now needed a mechanism to distribute, you know, the gains there effectively. Then once you have that mechanism in place, that mechanism can be co-opted to attack the network in a variety of ways. And I think it's much the same thing here. So maybe it's not necessarily that 51% attacks are not as bad as we think, but that they're the worst, or at least the perceived worst, of the available attacks. And so we fixate on them because of that. Does that make sense? That's correct. And part of the reason it's confusing is because I think people don't realize that consensus validation is not something that is only done by miners. And this is a very, very important, but also very contentious point that often people try to confuse others. Every node participating in the network validates, and consensus is an emergent property from the participation, collaboration, and oversight of multiple different constituencies, exchanges, merchants, users, developers, and miners through the use of validating nodes. Every transaction, every block gets validated by every node that's participating in the network. Which means that if miners 51% attack the consensus algorithm, they can't change the rules because everybody else is still validating things and will not accept invalid items. But they can gum up the works. I mean, the most powerful effect of a 51% attack, and I think the one we really should be focusing on, is denial of service. A really malicious actor who has nothing to gain financially, but is willing to spend a lot of money simply to destroy a system whose goal is mayhem. Can 51% attack a proof of work system pretty much indefinitely and deny service, basically shut down the processing of transactions. They just keep mining empty blocks. If anybody's lucky enough, every other block, the 49% will get. And then in the next block, it's going to get reorganized out of the chain. And so the only blocks that get in are the 51% blocks. And that attack can be sustained indefinitely as long as someone's willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars of electricity to deny service. That is the really worst case scenario of a 51% attack. What strikes me about this is that even in a successful 51% attack where the person who's doing it or entity that does it does actually make some money off of it, they are effectively attacking and overpowering the entire network in order to make a specific attack against one person. Is that correct? Yes. And furthermore, it creates a bit of uh, killing the gold egg laying goose. Well, I think that comes in with the denial of service, right? That's like, well, we're destroying everything. I think from this Ethereum classic example, like they had three successful 51% attacks. There was money stolen, not in substantial amounts, again, from specific exchanges, not by reassigning coins on the network or something like that that people might imagine. 
but it hasn't had much impact on confidence in the system at all, at least according to the token price. That's the point. Not in terms of confidence, the token price, but let's look at the functionality because Ethereum Classic is a utility token. It's not a money token like Bitcoin. And this has some very important implications because if you're using it to run smart contracts and you're using it to do DeFi, you're using it to do various things. Let's think about this for a second. Let's say there's a 51% attack that rolls back a thousand blocks. All right, now, how long do you need to wait now in order to accept that finality has been reached in your DeFi contract or smart contract or exchange withdrawal or exchange deposit is ready and secure? Thousand and one blocks, right? Previously, you would say, okay, after 30 blocks, I consider this confirmed and final. Then a thousand block reorg happens under 51% attack. Now you're like, well, okay, in order to protect against this, I can't accept a deposit into my exchange until it's actually cleared at least a thousand blocks. I'm probably going to add a margin of error and make it even bigger. So that comes down to about four and a half hours at the block time. You know, a thousand blocks on Ethereum Classic with 15 second blocks, about 4.1 hours. And then a month later, there's a 5,000 block reorg. Now you're not accepting Ethereum Classic deposits for 5,000 or 10,000 blocks. In fact, you've probably got a sour taste in your mouth, so you're going to really, really go over the board and say 15,000 blocks. The point I'm trying to make is that now what happens is Ethereum Classic doesn't actually work for some very specific use cases because you can no longer consider finality in smart contracts and do various things in DeFi. For example, you can't do financial instruments that depend on the ability to have timely resolution of state because you can no longer trust that you have finality. You have to slow down deposits and withdrawals dramatically, especially for something that is supposed to be or was until that point, you know, 10 times faster than Bitcoin. So a whole bunch of use cases go out the windows. The price may be the same, but the types of applications that you can build on something that now requires a day, two days, three days for finality on confirmation. Now that's really narrowed your use cases. So it really depends on whether this is being primarily seen as a speculative asset, in which case it doesn't matter what the use cases are. You're basically saying the use cases are not today. They're going to be in the future. And by that time, we'll figure this out. In the meantime, it's just an investment. But if you're really looking at something like this, the utility token, this messes up the utility part of the utility token quite significantly, which should, in a rational market, in my opinion, have an impact on price. So does the fact that it didn't have an impact on price mean that people were not seeing it as a utility token? They're just seeing it as a speculative investment? Ding, ding, ding. Mm. Absolutely. Especially, I think for Ethereum Classic, the really big problem is that Ethereum Classic's primary distinction from Ethereum is that it remains proof of work and will not transition to proof of stake. And it is the immutable Ethereum, the one that doesn't do a bailout for things like the DAO. And so this type of attack really makes it difficult because to maintain those principles, you have to brush it off, but then you really take the hit in terms of utility. So yeah, this is troubling for sure. And it points to why this is very different qualitatively, I think, from say a 51% attack on Bitcoin and what that would do. Wouldn't a transition from Ethereum to proof of stake from proof of work 
sort of the preamble to that just look like mining pools testing the waters not so benevolently by 51% attacking Ethereum Classic as they begin to ultimately move over to Ethereum Classic to proof of work mine it. Like those machines still have to go somewhere. And so, hey, if you're going to look at trying to make money in Ethereum Classic and you have no moral compass, wouldn't the step function to transitioning to it just be dipping the toes in it? And oops, hey, we have 50% of the network accident, you know, just by putting a little bit of what we're working on here. And then someone's like, oh, well, why don't we make a quick buck this way or quick buck that way? And so the equivalent of mining empty blocks, because it gets you half a percent more money that occurred in Bitcoin for years when you transition from a larger blockchain to another is putting a small percentage of your hash rate into the smaller chain, accidentally having 50%. And then while you have 50%, you might as well just do one or two little tiny attacks just to see what happens to make a little bit of money. And if the network survives that, you just sort of step function ratchet up more of the hash rate. But wouldn't you see a corresponding dip in Ethereum's hash rate if that were the case? And I think in this particular case, what we saw, in fact, was that this hash power was rented. And that's the big argument here in the Ethereum Classic community has been to find ways to attack kind of the evil nature of hash rental platforms that allow you to rent hash power for short periods of time in order to do something. And this didn't seem to come from Ethereum. It seemed to come from these hash rental places. Well, I think that there's another point that's brought up there, which is that you most often see these types of attacks succeed in blockchains that are not the largest or most dominant sort of use of whatever that particular proof of work algorithm is. A lot of times, again, it's these smaller players who are a fraction of a fraction of, say, the size, you know, Ethereum Classic versus Ethereum. So the margin for error is really much less on these smaller blockchains. And so in practice, that's where you see this danger really show up is in these less popular blockchains. I remember in the very early days of Bitcoin, when I was just starting to get involved, there was a meaningful concern about 51% attacks because people were mining on their computers. And so the kind of attack vector that people were concerned about, at least for a while, was the idea that botnets, which, you know, compromise people's computers and then have a centralized, you know, hacker or compromiser or whatever, who uses all of these different computers spread out all around the world in order to, you know, DDoS, you know, a website or something like that could be used as a way to mine. And then in that circumstance, well, you're not talking about a centralized source of hashing power. You're talking about a lot of compromised computers that might overpower the computers that aren't compromised, right? But that, in practice, is now not a concern at all, since all hardware that does mining in Bitcoin and most of the larger blockchains is now highly specialized and can only be used for that purpose. So, I mean, is there much of a concern about this sort of thing in the larger blockchains, like, say, Bitcoin or Ethereum? There is, if you're trying to fork those larger blockchains with a smaller blockchain, and that's exactly what happened to Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV. And Bitcoin Cash had to implement an emergency difficulty algorithm in order to account for the fact that even a fraction of the hash rate that's available in Bitcoin could mount an effective 51% attack without really diminishing the Bitcoin hash rate noticeably. And that continues to be the case today. And it has been the reason why you see these wild swings in hash rate that have affected both Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. And that's miners opportunistically switching back and forth between the chains and gaming the difficulty algorithm. That debate 
has now come to a head with the implementation of yet another new difficulty algorithm in Bitcoin Cash that involves a hard fork in November that is extremely contentious. So these things are happening in Bitcoin too with ASICs. They're just happening not on the dominant chain. Here's the difference though. The reason ASICs provide a meaningful difference in the resilience and robustness of a proof of work algorithm is because no one has unused ASICs in a significant amount, just hanging out, being unused, that they can throw into the game. Now, that's not the case with GPU. A GPU can be used for a variety of purposes, can be used to mine a variety of coins, is repurposable, is not application specific. And so you could have GPUs that are part of a machine learning infrastructure, a neural network training infrastructure, a rendering farm for an animated movie, whatever the case may be, or even a botnet of machines that are currently playing Microsoft Simulator 2020. And, <laughs> you know, a lot of people are now upgrading their computers to play Microsoft Flight Simulator. A botnet that took those over would be a meaningful contender in the GPU mining space. This is the double-edged sword of ASICs. One, it requires a massive industrial infrastructure investment, and that's bad, and it creates some degree of centralization. But it also means that these things don't just come out of nowhere, and you can't just have a secret stash of ASICs that haven't been used, unless you're looking at the very narrow scenario, which I talked about before, which is a malicious actor who has no intention of profiting and does this only to damage the system. So that's the scenario where a nation state goes out and invests several billion dollars over a period of time, secretly building ASICs to the latest specifications, doesn't use them at all. And then when they have enough, launches a successful sustained 51% attack against Bitcoin, which then leads to some interesting questions about, and then what do you do? What are the countermeasures to that? Hey listeners, Crypto.com offers one of the most convenient ways to purchase your favorite tokens or cryptocurrencies. It's also one of the most cost-effective ways, with the normal 3.5% credit card fee waived for all crypto purchases. What's more, with Crypto.com's MCO Visa card, you can get up to 10% back on things like food and grocery shopping. When you buy gift cards with the Crypto.com app, you can get up to 20% back. So download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors. Trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions, Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a NASDAQ matching engine, and their APIs are recognized as the best in the industry. Download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. In this crisis, many investors aim to keep and grow their digital assets. Others seek to maximize the yield on their cash. Nexo allows you to achieve exactly these two goals. The company offers instant crypto credit lines against all major cryptocurrencies, with interest rates starting from only 5.9% APR. Nexo also lets you earn up to 10% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily, and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. Get started at nexo.io.
Okay, so to this point, we've talked about primarily proof-of-work systems. Proof-of-work, obviously, Bitcoin, Ethereum, the kind of largest ones that are out there. But Ethereum is on its way to a proof-of-stake adjustment, which it hopes will let it scale and let it integrate some of the features that many people have wanted for a long time. But mostly it's about scaling. So Vitalik Buterin, inventor of Ethereum, tweeted a couple of days ago, I guess at this point it was last week, he says, we need to get past the myth that it's fatal if one entity gets to 51% attack in a proof-of-stake system. The reality is they could attack once, and then they either get slashed, or if a censorship attack, soft forked away and inactivity leaked, and they lose their coin so they can't attack again. In proof-of-work, on the other hand, a successful attacker can just attack over and over again with no possible way to delete their hardware without deleting everyone else's hardware. This is an underrated key fundamental advantage of proof-of-stake over proof-of-work. So pulling back a little bit from that, let's just talk about the differences between proof-of-work systems and proof-of-stake systems in the context of these 51% attacks. He's talking about a strength there, but there's a weakness that we've talked about before, which is sort of the monument, as you've described in the past, Andreas, that proof-of-work creates, which is not really something that proof-of-stake systems do, which is, again, has advantages, but has disadvantages. Yeah, so proof-of-stake and proof-of-work are about fundamentally different trade-offs. And no system is perfect, I think. These fundamentally different trade-offs may provide different benefits for different use cases. So some things are problems in proof-of-work systems, some things are problems in proof-of-stake systems. And then it's up to your interpretation of what the use case is and what trade-offs are actually worth doing for that use case as to whether those trade-offs are worthwhile and whether they're the correct trade-offs. And that argument often gets simplified into the trade-offs are entirely wrong. You have no design use case, and therefore that's an invalid choice, which I find to be a silly argument. So trade-offs. With a proof-of-work system, let's go back to the scenario I just described. You have a mysterious nation-state actor. What Vitalik is talking about here, which is the long-term denial of service and the sustainability of that type of attack. We talked about this in Bitcoin for many years. You have a state actor or state level actor that spends a couple of years secretly manufacturing ASICs with the latest specifications and spends several billion dollars doing so, or hundreds of millions of dollars at least, and sets them up and waits until they have enough to do a 51% attack against the proof of work chain Bitcoin in this particular case. And then they launch their 51% attack and they simply deny service. They mine empty blocks. What do you do? Well, you're not able to mine blocks with transactions because even though every other block is going to be on average mined by the 49% side, right? And can have transactions in it. Actually putting transactions in the 49% side's block slows it down a not insignificant amount. And then the 51% side can simply ignore any blocks that have transactions in them and continue building on the 51% side chain and reorging every five or six blocks as they manage to exceed the total work. Let's call the two chains A and B. You're going to end up with A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B until there's a reorganization and it just becomes all A's. In fact, the way that it would look on the network is that you would see A, B, 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 B as the 49% try to put blocks in, which are the B blocks. And then suddenly the other side publishes 10 A blocks in a row 
um, that are all children of each other and reorgs out all of the B blocks that were just mined and the game restarts. So let's break this down for a second. <laughs> so consensus reality, right? So you've got essentially one blockchain, but two different visions of that blockchain. And the side that's attacking, right, the 51% side that you've described as A, it has the ability, both sides do, but it has, because it has a slight advantage in terms of power relative to the honest side, it has the ability to not just mine its own blocks, but to reject blocks that come from the other side. Because consensus-based reality, if you can control consensus within the attacker side, then the attacker can rewrite reality. And that's what you're talking about, is that it would look like the honest side is actually publishing blocks, but because it's less powerful, that vision of reality is overwhelmed over and over and over again by the attacker. And this isn't a way to steal anything. This is a way to shut things down, to make it so the blockchain just simply doesn't work anymore for whatever reason. Yeah, and there's very little defense you can mount against that. The defenses then become largely social defenses. So what you have to do then is it gets complicated. You get a series of measures and countermeasures. So uh, you could rewrite the client and say, we no longer accept empty blocks. And then the honest side runs that and their vision of you know, reality splits off where now this is a version that doesn't accept empty blocks. And so the other side is being rejected and it doesn't eliminate the attacker side. It separates them in a way that allows the honest side to continue working, hopefully much better. You're essentially going to get a hard fork where you'll end up with two chains, A and B. The B side will be building upon the point at which 51% attack started and will provide full blocks and the A side will have empty blocks. The problem is this isn't very effective because all the A side has to do is put in a bunch of completely pointless circular transactions that feed a wallet back and forth. And so they'll make full blocks instead, but they'll be blocks full of junk, right? So then you go to second level countermeasures. At that point, you're like, well, okay, so we're going to need to have some way of identifying valid blocks with people who are not playing these games. And then you end up with some kind of proof of stake, proof of work hybrid. So you're like, the 49% defenders get to publish blocks, but only if they sign them with these mining pool keys. And we change the client so that it only accepts ones that are signed properly with these keys. So every valid block has to have a transaction from someone we consider a trusted actor. You've effectively switched it to a proof of work, proof of stake hybrid or proof of work, proof of authority hybrid or something like that. And then finally, what you can do, which is what Vitalik describes, the slashing example, is you change from SHA-256 to SHA-3 or whatever. You basically burn down the entire industrial infrastructure of Bitcoin. You go scorched earth and you say, OK, well, you spent a billion dollars building ASICs. We're just going to make it GPU mineable again. Due to the profitability of GPU mining Bitcoin, that means that every other proof of work coin has all of its mining disappear overnight because they all switch to mining Bitcoin. And the entire GPU infrastructure on the planet switches to mining Bitcoin. But that really is the nuclear option. That really is like the scorched earth, like you're burning it all down and you're hurting the people who were good actors, but who were in the wrong business at a time when this sort of change was required. We've never seen anything like this happen. And even that may not work because, again, if you do that, <laughs> it's the obvious move, right? So if you're a nation state that has just built all of these ASICs, well, you probably have some GPU lying around, too. Right. So why not build 
a massive GPU infrastructure, anticipating that's going to be the next move, and then you go and 51% attack it again. And you can keep playing this kind of chess, where you're like two moves ahead, three moves ahead, four moves ahead, and start thinking about all of the moves and counter moves. Eventually, it boils down to you're going to have to implement some kind of proof of authority or proof of stake hybrid. What Vitalik is saying here is that in a proof of stake system, you don't have this problem because the stake isn't an industrial hardware infrastructure and the electricity needed to run it as it is in Bitcoin's proof of work. The stake is Ether. That Ether is locked into smart contracts. And if someone tries to cheat, they get slashed. Now, slashing is a particular way to solve a problem known as nothing at stake proof of stake, which is that you need to have a way to punish people who try to cheat. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the nothing at stake problem because this always comes up when we talk about attacks on proof of stake systems. And I was just actually like reading about it a little bit. So I want to summarize it. Okay, so in proof of work, as we've just discussed, there's this requirement to use resources, hashing power, in order to attack the system. And the incentive is for miners to only mine on the correct chain because they can't mine on more than one chain. Otherwise, they're splitting their hashing power and they're just diluting it. Whereas with proof of stake, it's basically like the miners have an incentive to validate on any chain, like even if it's a competing chain to the main chain. And so there's nothing at stake because they can just sign any transaction and that rewards them because if the attacker's chain ends up winning, you know, that node that signed it gets rewarded either way. So it doesn't really matter. That's pretty much it. So if you have two competing chains, A and B, and if I can stake my Ether behind the blocks being validated by A and the blocks being validated by E, either one wins. Because the other history disappears forever, then I get rewarded in both futures, right? Yeah, and you can. It doesn't cost to stake your resources behind multiple competing chains. So the way this is solved at least in the current formulation of Casper, which is the plan for ETH2. The way this is solved is with a mechanism whereby you signal your intention to stake at a specific block height with a specific signing address into which you've committed funds, and those funds get locked, and you signal that intention 3,000 blocks before you actually stake. Then, if the block N plus 3,000 comes along, and you end up signing for two competing versions of that block, you try to play both sides, and that is noticed. During the next era, others can publish a punishment transaction that slashes your stake, that takes away your reward or even part of your staked coins, depending on how you implement this algorithm, and in a nice little irony, rewards the person who found that you did so and gives them part of your reward. So the punisher gets a percentage of the reward that would have gone to you and you lose that reward and some portion of your stake. Now, because that incentivizes people to watch all of the parallel futures that might unfold, looking for cheaters who are trying to stake multiple times and gives them an incentive to punish them after the fact for trying to do that by publishing a proof that shows that they actually tried to stake multiple times on multiple 
independent chains. That combined with the slashing effect, which is if you try to violate the rules, not only do you not get a reward, but you lose some of your staked coins. So that's to enforce the idea that you shouldn't only get a positive reward if you do the security correctly, but you should actually lose money if you don't do the security correctly. And then there's the idle approach where if you try to only validate empty blocks or blocks that are eventually not included, then you can have a penalty for that too. So the idea being that if you try a denial of service attack, you get punished by this idleness function in a similar way as to slashing because you're keeping multiple histories of the chain. Now, this is an elegant solution that solves the fundamental problem of nothing at stake. To answer Adam's question, how does this relate to the immutability monument that I've talked about in the past is that this works, but it only works for short-term consensus attacks, long-range attacks, where you start hundreds of eras prior and start rewriting from the Genesis block or tens of thousands of blocks before the current era, then you can't really go back and slash the stake that the person has put in because they've since released it after two eras have passed, right? So if you make the window very large for how long an error should be and how long you have your coin stake, that creates some incentive problems because then you have to really commit very, very long term and you're taking very significant risk. If you make it too short, then you enable long range attacks and how exactly you balance those two competing concerns becomes a significant problem in proof of stake systems. But at the same time, the alternative to that, if you think of that as a trade-off, which is how much long-term investments do you have to put in and how much does that long-term investment create elements of centralization, you can think of Bitcoin as going all the way on one side of that trade-off. There, you're making an investment of hundreds of millions of dollars in industrial infrastructure forever and the energy required to mine those blocks, you're never getting that back. So it encourages very long-term investments, but that also encourages the level of centralization that you see in Bitcoin mining. Right. The barrier to participating in a system like that is much higher than in a proof-of-stake equivalent. That's correct. And so, again, in my opinion, there's no correct answer, and there's certainly no correct answer without the context question what application are you trying to solve? If this is a long-term store of value, very robust sound money approach, then the ability to do long-range consensus attacks is critically important. You have to protect against those kinds of attacks because otherwise you have problems with long-term retention of value and ownership. But if what you're trying to do is extremely nimble financial services applications, then quick finality on the medium term and the short term is much more important than robustness against the long-term attack that you can address through social consensus mechanisms. So there's a larger topic to talk about here in proof of stake, but just staying on kind of this reward and game theory mechanism. So one of the things that occurs to me based on your explanation of how slashing works and how there's actually a profit motive for people to watch the blockchain for fraud effectively, because they can wind up with some of the tokens of anybody who cheats the system. Well, still, is there a scenario or are you aware of any scenarios where that slashing mechanism that rewards the person who reported it can be turned around 
And if the network, you know, is temporarily taken over, then good actors can actually be slashed for not being in compliant with the bad attacking blockchain. Possibly. Yeah. I don't know how that would play out. But if you think of ETH2 as a massive test net for testing exactly those things, but not just ETH2, but a number of other proof of stake, delegated proof of stake systems that use a variety of mechanisms. Not all proof of stake systems use slashing. Others use other mechanisms to achieve the same goals and different trade-offs vis-a-vis long range attacks, speed of finality, nothing at stake problem, and all of those things. Ethereum's ETH2 Casper proof of stake is one particular interpretation of that problem. And there's a dozen other proof of stake systems that have different approaches to that. The newest one would be Polkadot, invented by Gav Wood, my co-author for Mastering Ethereum. So this is still a very rapidly evolving space. And with a lot of these things, the theoretical attacks are interesting, but what's much more interesting is what happens when you put this in real adversarial conditions on a public and open network where you can't just roll things back at a whim and where real money is at stake, pun intended. And at that point, when there's real money on the table, then we can speak about the robustness of a system. And in fact, this is kind of a clinical or experiential or experimental approach to the robustness of security, which is you can write all the papers you want in the world, but the only argument you can make in practice is Bitcoin is currently attack resistance to approximately 150, 200 billion dollars. How do I know? Because that's how much money is sitting on the pot in the middle of the table with lots of people trying to grab it. And you could even put that as times the number of days that it's gone without an attack, right? So you could say it's $200 billion days every day that it goes without attack. And so with these systems, you can measure their security experientially or under clinical conditions, if you want, by outcomes. What, how secure is so-and-so's proof of stake? It's total funds at risk times days that they have not been stolen or compromised. And that's your answer. That would be a really interesting metric, actually, to calculate. It's got its own problems, of course, because market cap is a problematic measure. You, how much of that is actually liquid, et cetera, et cetera. In proof of stake systems, it's actually easier to measure because you can just measure only the things that are staked currently. But yes, I mean, essentially what I'm saying is proof is in the pudding. You can write all the papers in the world until you put a significant chunk of money. The nice thing about a practical measure like that is that you can work backwards. You can say... Instead of asking how secure is it in order to evaluate the algorithm, you can ask how secure is it in order to decide how much money you're willing to risk in such a system. So let's say I was building a financial instrument that I expected to attract a billion dollars value under management. Well, I can then decide which smart contract, which multisig, which underlying blockchain, which proof of stake consensus system is capable of supporting that by looking at how long have they had a billion dollars under management without having it stolen? And so how much you're willing to risk, you can base on the amount that's been able to be secured times the time-based value of that money. And then you can decide how much you invest in that system. And that's all the time we have. Thanks to everyone for sitting in. 
Today's episode featured Andreas Am Antonopoulos, Jonathan Mohan, Stephanie Murphy, and myself, Adam B. Levine. Music for our show comes courtesy of Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats with editing by Jonas. 